The following audio content is a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org. Let me get this out of the way. Uh, University of Washington swept the races yesterday. Uh, we're uh, talking about every oar in the water with a little bit of a crew motif. We're reflecting on the book of Jonah. And Jonah reminded us last week that uh, those to whom the word of the Lord comes are servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But there is a kind of an occupational hazard. Those of us who deal with God's grace, which I hope is all of us. And if we were oars persons thinking about that hazard, we might call it catching a crab. And I want to ask you to pull out the bulletin and look at the the photos that are on the cover of that because you'll see uh, a picture towards the bottom with a couple of ankles up in the air. This is an unfortunate moment. It's not intentional, not taking a dip. This is called catching a crab and a big one at that. What happens uh, is that the the blade of the oar, the spoon end, uh, uh, can get stuck in the water if we bury it too deeply and hold it there too long. It's very important at the speed at which a cruise shell moves to be able to lower your hands at the end of the stroke and pop that blade and twist with one arm, so with one wrist so that the blade comes out of the water for the recovery of the next stroke. Catching a crab is, of course, not catching a literal crab, but it's a blade that's stuck buried deep in the water, and it can throw the oars person right out of the uh, water. It's kind of funny to see. Um, it's not funny if it happens to you. Um, it's very important that you keep your head down, especially when you're in the bow of the boat, because you've got a few more blades to, to clear before you should come up for air. <laughs> but those who've received the word of the Lord and know God's grace are also at risk if we're not careful of burying it too deeply and keeping it buried too long. This morning we look at Jonah chapter 1, and I would invite you to pull out Uh, your Bible or the Pew Bible on the rack in front of you and open up to page 752. Let's stand together and read this text. Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 through 6, the second paragraph there in the chapter. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you'll say, thanks be to God. Jonah chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Listen carefully, you're reading God's word. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and such a mighty storm came upon the sea that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried to his God. They threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Jonah, meanwhile, had gone down into the hold of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. The captain came and said to him, What are you doing sound asleep? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps the God will spare us a thought so that we do not perish. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. It can hurt to catch a crab. It rarely leaves a mark, but the greatest tragedy of it is 
uh, when it throws you from the boat, you miss the action. And if we've read the rest of the story of Jonah, we know Jonah turns out okay, physically at least. But he's thrown from the deck of the greatest adventure of his life uh, to date. And he will miss the action of God. Uh, Jonah is a kind of a, a narcoleptic prophet. Because as soon as the story gets really exciting, we find him descending into the bowels of this ship. Uh, ten years ago, actually, in the Mediterranean, two Phoenician ships were raised, and they're quite large uh, boats. As I recall, some, one of them was some 60 uh, feet, uh, ocean-going, very stable, and apparently this one has a, a deck on it, a cover, and a hold down beneath. And even as the word of the Lord had come to Jonah, saying, Jonah, get up and go, now he has laid down and fallen asleep. He's taken the grace that God has given him and buried it. And when he does... Uh, he's going to lose track of three things. He's going to lose track of where his interest lay, of who he really is, and of what God is doing around him. And so, as I said, uh, Jonah serves as a foil for those of us who follow Jesus Christ. The opposite will be true of us. And the moral is that those of us who live a generous life unbury the gifts of God and share them liberally with those around us. And we will find... Uh, great joy in doing so. Let's look at these first three, three, three things that Jonah misses. Well, first of all, it seems kind of obvious to say it, but he misses a dry ride home. You know, I mean, if Jonah could stay on the boat, then he's, uh, he's got a much pleasanter accommodation as he travels uh, back to Joppa. He's going there anyways, one way or another, uh, we find out. But, you know, he's hardly getting first class accommodations inside of a fish. And he could have done better. He could have done better if he had taken advantage of the opportunity God gave him to share his gift with people who were in trouble. Just flash back uh, uh, a little bit. Roll the tape back. We don't know a lot about Jonah, but from 2 Kings chapter 14, you'll find a little paragraph there. And Jonah is remembered for two things in that paragraph. Uh, God's grace and the boundaries of Israel. Uh, this is the beginning of the 8th century B.C. Jeroboam II is king over northern Israel. And the uh, writer there is very clear that Israel is in trouble. It's afflicted. And in fact, it's wicked. Uh, Jeroboam is a, a bad king. He's followed the pattern of his uh, ancestors. And so uh, Israel, northern Israel is in trouble. But God apparently gives a word to Jonah who says... God has heard your trouble and is coming to help. Because God has grace for you, he's going to share with you exactly what you don't deserve. He could come in judgment, but he's going to come in grace, give liberty uh, to you. And in fact, what Jonah says is God will expand our borders, which happens. Uh, the borders of Israel expand. So it's ironic then that in this text we find Jonah... Uh, who himself has been a prophet of grace, containing that grace within borders. I mean, God has sent him to Assyria, which is very unusual for an Israelite uh, prophet to be sent to another country, much less uh, their enemy. And Jonah has said, I, I can't do that. I, I do not want to share God's grace with those people. Gets on a boat and goes the opposite direction, drops into the hold and falls asleep. And there we find him resisting of the generous life. And the captain of the ship, in the midst of the storm, as the uh, sailors all cry out, comes down to Jonah and says, Man, what are you doing asleep? 
We got a crisis. Would you help us out by calling on whoever your God is, the God that you must worship? And Jonah kind of rolls over and he opens his eyes. And Jonah knows very well what will end this crisis. He understands the sailors are in trouble and he has a gift to give. Now, I think God has set this up for him. I think God has said, okay, Jonah, you had a little trouble with the first assignment. It was a big assignment. I'm going to scale it down a little bit and I'm going to give you a little object lesson in helping people out. I'm going to make it real clear what you can do to help these people out. And what it is, Jonah would just have to say, you know what? I'm the problem and uh, you will all be saved if you can just turn the boat around and go back to Joppa and I'll fulfill the mission that God has given me. That would have been sharing his gift, not only with the Assyrians, but sharing it with the, uh, the, the Phoenician uh, sailors and the other uh, crew members. It's a very international crew, it turns out. On this day. But Jonah doesn't want for some reason to live the generous life. He wants to live what I would call the debtor life. I'm going to tell you about the debtor life. Uh, by the way, you know that we uh, say the Lord's Prayer here uh, with uh, trespasses and uh, those who trespass against us. Do you know where that comes from? It comes from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, that's the language that's used there. But there's other language, as many of you know, and like to point out from time to time, and we'll, we'll change it up and surprise you someday. Uh, that's the, the language of debts and debtors. And do you know where that language comes from? It's the book of Matthew. That's the language that Matthew uses. Now think about who Matthew was. Matthew was a tax collector. Matthew knew the debtor life. That's the life that he lived until one day Jesus Christ came alongside of him and said, Hey you, come and follow me. And he learned about the generous life. He learned that the, the gifts you give are a, a response to the gifts that you have been given. And the more you give, the more grace you get to give. See, when Jonah gives up the generous life, he gives up life to the full. The best ride home. It's not in the fish. It's on the deck. He gives up the best. God still pursues him. God still is intimate with him. God still gets him where he needs to go. But the ride is bumpier than it needs to be. And Matthew, you know, a tax collector used to give a large sum of money to the Romans and then go extract that money by whatever means available to them from uh, the Jewish people in, that, in Palestine. So basically what you do is you put yourself in the hole financially, hugely. And then you go out and try to reclaim that debt by extracting from other people. That's the debtor mentality. You know, the generous life is that life that knows, hey, I'm not at deficit here. I'm at surplus. And so what I, the problem that I'm facing in life is how to give away some of this excess stuff. And, and Matthew remembers uh, the teaching of Jesus in 7.2 where he says, the measure you give is the measure you get. Keep giving and you'll keep receiving. Luke remembers uh, more. Give and it will be given to you, Jesus says. A good measure. Pressed down, shaken together, running over, be put into your lap. For the measure you give will be the measure you get back. That's the generous life. And we have a lot of things to give. I just use the example of, 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 of money, for example. Uh, a lot of people think about tithing as a kind of a legalistic or an Old Testament thing. Well, it does come from the Old Testament, but it came before the law. Abram, the one with whom God made a covenant of grace, is the first one in scriptures to have given a tenth, a tithe. And, and it's not a way, of, it's not a, 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 we don't do it in, in the generous life uh, because we're trying to 
earn God's favor. There are people who live the debtor's life who try to tithe in that way. But look at the way the ancient prophet Malachi, some 400 years after Jonah, expresses it. God says through him, why don't you bring the tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house, says the Lord. And thus put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you an overflowing blessing. Now, in Israel, in the context of the, the, the Sinai covenant, they probably would have understood that as material blessing. Followers of Jesus Christ will understand that it's, it's not simply material blessing. It's much more than that. Sometimes uh, we're not materially blessed at all. But the, 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 the principle that God blesses those who give, that we are to put him to the test because he is faithful, uh, still holds. There was a, a wonderful uh, a column in the New York Times on March 8th written by a man named Lang Martin, who uh, one day received the phone call none of us wants to get. His wife had been in a car accident, lost the use of both of her legs. She was paraplegic for life. And he watched her struggle with this. Very talented lady. This incredible, capable woman, he writes, who loved to hike mountains, ride waves, and run marathons, who had cleared our sizable backyard of eight-foot-high brambles and helped me move all our furniture to three houses, suddenly couldn't do any of those things ever again. And not long after getting home from the hospital, when we were having dinner by candlelight at our kitchen table, she burst into tears. I don't know if I can do this for the rest of my life, she said. All I could say was, we'll do it together. And this this gentleman began to recalibrate his whole understanding of who he was in his world around the service of his wife. And he learned the beauty of the generous life. In the headline, he calls it the charmed Life, And at the end of the article, this is what he says. This is what he learns. He says, and now, so long since that fateful night, years ago, her accident, looking across the dinner table at my wife or seeing her across the room at a party, the the hopeless crush that I have on her is as wonderfully out of control as when I first saw her more than four decades ago through the screen door. I still get excited after work when I pull in the driveway and know that I'll soon get to see the sexy, beautiful, very funny person I live with and later on snuggle up to her in bed. We've rolled up and down the hills of Tuscany, squeezed into pubs in Ireland, explored narrow streets in Paris and Rome, gone to Red Sox games, had coffee in the sunshine in San Francisco, Portland, Chicago, and Miami. And we've learned that alongside great loss, we can still have a great life. We want it so badly and we love it so much. At sunset, as we sit on the deck of our house in Rhode Island in our side-by-side chairs, mine, Adirondack style, hers on wheels. We look across the water at Fisher's Island and think we are as lucky as two people can be. We don't know what will happen tomorrow or who will, long, or who will live how long, but we were young together. We struggled to make a life. We raised three great sons. We've each been the caregiver and the cared for, and I suspect that we each have a little more of both in our future. We are two, but we are one, and I love those numbers. It's the gift of the generous life. It's the fullest life and that's what we learn, first of all, uh, from Jonah. The second thing we learn is that the generous life is the life we're made for. Notice next what Jonah misses out on when he goes below the deck. Let me read verses 7 through 10. The sailors said to one another, Come, let us cast lots so that we may know on whose account this calamity has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to Jonah, Now, here's the interrogation of Jonah. 
Tell us why this calamity has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? Jonah answers, I am a Hebrew. He replied, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were even more afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them so. The generous life is the life that we're made for. And and this comes out in these four questions the the sailors ask of Jonah. We don't actually uh, get the answers, do we? Um, But the hearer of this ancient story in Israel would certainly have them rattling around their head and they'd be fraught with significance. Because they have to do with Jonah's identity and they have to do with the Israelites' identity. And friends, they have to do with your identity and mine. Let's go back through these questions again. The first one is, why is this uh, uh, calamity come upon us? And Jonah's answer would be, well, because I believe in a sovereign God who rules over the events and the affairs of all history. And the next question, what is your occupation? But Jonah's answer should be, I'm a prophet. God has given me a way to help. Well, the next question, well, where do you come from? Which is another way of asking not only what's your hometown, but, but uh, where did your mission begin? With what a precipitating event? And Jonah would have to answer, I have a commission to serve. That's why I left. Well, what is your country or your land? Eretz in Hebrew. And no Israelite could hear that word without knowing its great significance for them. Jonah would have to answer, I have a story of great salvation. Because we are the people who came through the Exodus to receive the promised land. To live with God. And finally, the climactic question of them all. Who are your people? And Jonah would have to say, I am a descendant of Abraham. That one who was to have a fa- be a father of great nations, a nation who would bless many nations. I belong to a sovereign God. I have a way to help, a gift. I have a commission to serve. I have a story of great salvation. And I have a blessing for all the nations. I hope it sounds familiar to you and me. For those of us who follow Jesus Christ have just those things. That's exactly who we are as well as Jonah. But Jonah doesn't get it. Uh, Jonah, he says, I am a Hebrew. He takes the title. He claims to be a worshiper and one who fears God. But he's not worshiping. He's in the belly of the boat. He's not uh, fearing God. He's defying him. If anyone's fearing God or worshiping, it's the sailors on the deck of the ship, those up above. No, Jonah hides the generous life deep inside his spirit, and in so doing, he forgets who he is. And this is why I think faith needs works. This is what James tells us, and it troubles a lot of us. We think, works? What's that got to do with grace? Faith needs works, not for salvation, but for identification. You see, the works that you add to your faith as a response to the grace of Jesus Christ remind you and remind us who you are and whose you are. Listen to James. He says, be doers of the word, the word of the Lord. Be doers of it and not merely hearers who deceive themselves. For if any are hearers of the word and not doers, they're like those who look at themselves in a mirror. They look at themselves 
and on going away immediately forget what they were like. But those who look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, the law of grace, and persevere, being not hearers who forget, but doers who act, they will be blessed in their doing. You see the power of the generous life. I mean, Jonah has forgotten who he is. He's forgotten the real answers to all of these questions. He's like a, a European or a continental uh, lord who once had a manor, an estate, a, a castle, great wealth, and great powers, and squires, and all the rest. But now, generations later, he runs around at cocktail parties in a rumpled suit and claims to be Lord so-and-so. But he's, he's, he's nothing more than someone who carries a title. He's forgotten who he is, Jonah. And so below the deck, we miss who we are if we bury our gifts. The generation, generous life is the life that's the fullest life. It's the life that we're made for. And then finally, the generous life is the life that sees God in action. A generous life is the life that gets to see God working. <clears throat> and Jonah misses this below the deck as well. He misses God so close, so beautifully working around him. Let me read the final verses of this section, verses 11 through 16. Then the sailors said to Jonah, What should we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea was growing more and more tempestuous. And Jonah said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this storm has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to bring the ship back to land. But they could not. For the sea grew more and more stormy against them. Then they cried out to the Lord. Please, O Lord, we pray. Do not let us perish on account of this man's life. Do not make us guilty of innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked Jonah up and threw him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord even more. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Wow. This to Israelite ears would be absolutely scandalous. Do you see what's been happening on the deck of the ship while Jonah has been below? Do you see the transformation from a group of pagans who cry upon many gods? I say it's an international crew because every nation or village had its own god. And they go in so many different directions and they speak to Jonah of his god as the god. Absolutely ignorant. But bit by bit, as the story progresses, the narrator begins to use the vocabulary of Israelite piety to describe what these sailors are doing. Note, they begin by fearing God. They begin by crying out loud. They begin by casting lots, which is something the Israelites would do. We see in the Old Testament to discern God's will. They're very very attentive to what does God want. And then when Jonah tells them, I'm the problem and you can solve it by throwing me overboard, what do they say? No way. We can't do that. And they sit down at their seats and they press their oars into their hands and they pull as fiercely as they can to save Jonah's life. They've got ethics. They value life, not just innocent life, guilty life. And then here's, uh, here's the, the most astounding thing of all. And that is uh, when we read, They cried out in verse 14 to the Lord. When you see the the small all caps like that, that's the holy, the divine covenant name of God, Yahweh or Jehovah. 
Here now, in their prayer, they will use the name that Israel alone was privileged to use. They will see themselves or try to see themselves in covenant relationship with the same Lord that Jonah flees. And they will end this section offering a sacrifice and a vow. This is temple piety. We'll see it come up in Jonah's lips in the next chapter. Wow. How do you understand that? If not, that the God of all creation, and remember I told you last week there's a lot of creation theology in the book of Genesis, shows himself to have an interest in every one of his creatures. He shows himself to be at work in every person's life. So that when you try to share your gift with someone, whether that be a verbal gift, a testimony to Jesus Christ, or coming alongside them in their time of need, you and I are to know with confidence that God has already been there. That He is there when you arrive and He will be there when you leave. And it's not what you do in their lives, it's what He is doing in their lives that makes your giving a gift so powerful. I remember when I was a very young Christian, it's one of my favorite stories to tell, and you'll hear me tell it again. Uh, I, I was in a small group of men, and we were all challenged to try to speak about Jesus Christ with five friends. And I thought, oh my goodness, I don't even have five friends, uh, let alone five that I can risk alienating by bringing up a religious subject. So you start from the bottom of the list, and you work up, you know. One of these friends lived in my dormitory. And uh, it had been long since we had made that pledge, and I hadn't acted on it at all, and I was nervous about it. And I had on my desk a little outline with some verses in it that described the grace of Jesus Christ. And I was th- sort of thumbing it and fingering it and well, praying, God, can I have an opportunity to speak with this friend? Well, this friend uh, appeared at my doorway. I happened to live at the foot of the sto- stairwell, and there was a fire exit right outside. And uh, he came, and we, he stood in the doorway with his backpack, and we chatted a little bit. And I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to Ken. I said, ah, oh, have a good time. And he said, yeah, see you later. It's a real bummer. And walked out the door, jumped out the fire escape, crossed the lawn, down the retaining wall, crossed the street. And I said, God, give me a chance to speak of you with that person. <laughs> yeah, I was, it was, uh, I was tough. <clears throat> but n- I, no sooner had I finished that uh, silent prayer... Did I watch that friend stop right in the median, in the middle of the street, turn around. He climbed back up the retaining wall. He crossed the grass. He pried the fire door back open, came into the room, sat on my roommate's bed, which was four feet away from me, threw his backpack on the pillow, looked at my desk, saw that little outline, said, what's that? <laughs> now, that if that doesn't freak your socks off, I don't, I, I don't know what would. <clears throat> But, but, but when we give generously, when we use our gifts, we get a front row seat. We get to see God working. And that will build your faith like nothing else. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 25, when he says, Hey, those of you who gave a cup of water to the thirsty, who visited those who were in prison, who gave food to the hungry, you have seen me in those people. Because as you use your gift, you will see God at work through you and in them. It's a generous life. Well, what has God given you uh, that you can share? Do you, have, do you have time? Time for listening? Time for praying? Time for teaching? Uh, do you have skill? Skill for helping people uh, solve problems? Skill for making beautiful things? Uh, do you have uh, money? Uh, money for helping the poor? 
Money for investing in game-changing projects in the world. Do you have faith? Faith to encourage someone who's lost hope or faith to lead in an organization. If you've not found a way to put your oar in the water and use your gift, I hope you'll reach out to someone and ask for some help. Because where you sit right now in this congregation or where you listen on the radio, you are surrounded by a group of people who are rich in generosity, who have learned to live the generous life, and many will help you. I think of people like Rod Shine, who every week is working with our our young boys, teaching them about woodworking and also teaching them about Jesus Christ. I think about Sid and Skip Lee, who left a home on Mercer Island and with others to come and live right here in the U District and, 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 and engage in ministry of hospitality to college students. I think about Rodney, who used to work on our soundboard, who just wanted to make a difference in youth's lives and began a foundation to build a, a, a community center for them. I think right now, hundreds, literally hundreds of University of Washington students who are doing a program they're calling 206 in 206, which is 206 hours of continuous prayer for this uh, area code, 206, over in Baker House. They're coming into the basement and praying continuously. I think of our senior adults in Second Wind who are using their gifts in Stephen Ministry or Seattle Urban Academy volunteering or uh, uh, opening up their homes to small groups. I think of little Isabel Woodward, who worships with us and who one day said, last, it was last year, I, I can't practice on Easter and lost a seat in the boat and ended up subbing in for a higher boat and coxed that woman's eight uh, to victory uh, yesterday using her gifts. I think of Alex Sachs, who helps people with insurance during the day, but at night he's here in the U District at the Roots Shelter uh, ministering to homeless young adults. I don't know if it's true, but they say that great uh, aqueduct that's in Segovia, in Spain, it's beautiful with its height and its soaring arches. It was a way of carrying water the Romans built uh, from one place to another, spanning a great ravine. And, and they say that uh, for 60 generations, that, uh, that aqueduct functioned uh, beautifully for 1,800 years. And it was only when someone came along and said, you know, we've really got to preserve that. We really shouldn't use it. We ought to take better care of it. And they built a pipeline structure that circumvented it. Manal, proud that they had modern uh, plumbing and piping for their water system, began to notice, though, that it was starting to decay at a rate that they'd not seen before. Because as it turned out, it was the, uh, in the hot uh, sun of Spain, the mortar, without the presence of water, trickling down and softening and preserving it, It was corroding. In the same way, our lives, without carrying the water of God's grace into other people's lives, we will not know the fullness of life. We will not know who we really are and what we're made to do. And we will not see God at work in the world. But if we do, all of those things will be ours. Let's pray. We bow our heads before you, O Jesus, who have said, you have invited us. Give and it will be given to you. May we never be known as a rich church, but may we always be known as a generous church. A people who learn to use our gifts synergistically for your glory, for the benefit of this city and the world. Help each of us to trust you, to know that what feels like a loss is really a gain as we give. Because you are a faithful and generous God. Amen. 
All University Presbyterian Church online audio is available on both CD and cassette. If you would like to support the mission of UPC by ordering copies of sermons or classes, please visit www.upc.org forward slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.